You can turn then to our sermon text for today, which is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 1 through 22. John, chapter 19, starting in verse 1. This is after Jesus has been arrested, delivered over to Pilate, and Pilate has asked the Jews... What do they have against Jesus? They didn't have much against Jesus as far as actual accusations. Then Pilate questioned Jesus. And now we'll pick up in chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Join with me in prayer. 
Oh, Father, we thank you for this good news, for this word that you have delivered to us. I, uh, we, we pray that you would guide us in reverently handling these things, this account of our salvation. We pray that you would help us to lay this up in our hearts, that we might keep it with us always, that we might receive your Son as our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, we find that Jesus is condemned to crucifixion, and he is crucified on the cross. There's a little bit more time before he dies. We'll see uh, in the next sermon. But in this, he is hung on the cross. He's nailed to the cross. Uh, And even before that, there's still a bit of back and forth between Pilate and the Jews, especially the chief priests, as they seek his crucifixion. And we see a theme throughout this passage. Do you notice that there's there's something that flows throughout it, uh, a title that is found throughout this passage? Can you think of what title for Jesus is used throughout this passage? King of the Jews. That is a phrase that we found earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, right? Can you think of anyone that called Jesus the King of the Jews earlier when he was a baby? The wise men. The wise men called Jesus the King of the Jews. This is a title that the Gentiles understood. Uh, Among the Jews, they would more likely use the word Christ, the anointed one, the anointed heir of David, uh, the one whom they were looking for. Um, But but that also meant the King of the Jews, uh, the one who would be the king of God's people. And of course, the prophecies about this coming king were not just that he would rule over a little slice of land in, in Israel, but that he, his reign would extend to, what? The ends of the earth, right? That all nations would be blessed in him. So there was great expectations for the king of the Jews. And people make fun of this claim. They mock Jesus and his being king. They dress him up like a king and, and, and hit him and flog him. They say, behold your king. Would you crucify your king? And at the very end, as he's there on the cross, what's written above the cross? It, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of the Jews. And he is a king who laid down his life for his people. Even in his great humiliation, his obedience unto death, the truth was proclaimed. There's a lot of places throughout the Gospel of John where people do things unintentionally that actually show much greater truth than they realize. Like when Caiaphas said that one man would have to die for the people. Uh, He was thinking just of political expediency. We need to get this guy out of the way so that the nation's not destroyed. But it really was true that this one man would die for the people. Well, we have a lot of unintentional Uh, meaning in this passage where people say things more than they realize. Jesus, in fact, was the king of the Jews. This truth was proclaimed, in fact, in multiple languages. In Aramaic, kind of a a form of Hebrew uh, or related to Hebrew, and in 
Greek and in Latin. And many people saw it because they were going in and out of the city as the, the many people were there for Passover. This truth is being proclaimed. The wise men knew it at his birth and came to pay tribute to the king of the Jews. Now Pilate knew it at his death, or at least knew the claim that this man was king of the Jews. Well, let's go through the passage in more detail. First of all, in the first three verses, Jesus is flogged and mocked by the Romans. Pilate believed Jesus to be innocent. In fact, he says that three times in this passage. This man is not guilty. I find nothing wrong with this man. But he still had Jesus flogged. He thought maybe if he punished Jesus, that he would satisfy the Jews. And they would say, oh, that's enough. And that way, he wouldn't completely violate his conscience more than uh, he would. He was still going against his conscience. He was still doing something he knew to be unjust. But uh, he thought maybe I could stop short of killing him and still satisfy this, this crowd. It didn't work, of course. But he had Jesus punished unjustly, unfairly. First with a flogging. Now this flogging, this being whipped and beaten, was a severe punishment. There were multiple kinds of flogging, and this one is described in the Gospels as the severe kind, a scourging. Uh, one that sometimes was with rods, sometimes with, with, with whips, with bits of, of, uh, of stone or, or metal within the, the whip to take out even pieces of skin. It was a severe punishment, usually used for those who they knew were going to get killed anyhow. There was no need to uh, hold back. He is flogged. And then he's given a crown. Well, what kind of crown is he given? Is he given a big golden crown, dazzling with jewels? A crown of thorns. A crown of thorns. That is not much of a crown. It is a painful crown. It is a, an ironic crown. It's You know, a crown is supposed to be showing that your dignity and your glory, but this was a crown of thorns. Again, though, I think this is a place where the Romans weren't thinking about it, but are thorns kind of important in the Bible? They're kind of important. There's a place early on in the Bible where thorns come up. Where did thorns come from? Were thorns originally a problem in the Garden of Eden? Not originally. Remember, it was part of the curse that thorns and thistles will now get in your way. And there will be pain and misery because of sin. Well, now Jesus took the thorns, the curse for sin, even upon his head. Romans weren't thinking of that. But we can see that that was quite fitting. That Jesus was a king, but he was taking upon himself our curse. And he was given a purple robe. Again, something that would make him look like a king. They're dressing him up as a king, but then they're hitting him. And then they're mocking him. They're saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Long live the King of the Jews, which we're about to, to execute. You know, they're, they're obviously not thinking he really is a king. They're making fun of him. They're striking him. But in this torture and mockery, his identity as the king who suffered for his people was nonetheless proclaimed. It also fulfilled prophecy. The prophets had seen this coming. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, it's, it's speaking of Jesus, who says, 
I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. In Isaiah 53, 5, it says, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, or with his stripes, we are healed. Those stripes that were caused by his flogging and his beating, those wounds, it was through his suffering that we were made whole, that we received peace with God, that we were saved from death. So Jesus experienced great pain and agony and public mockery, something that's hard for us to receive. Have people made fun of you? Have a whole band of soldiers made fun of you while inflicting pain upon you? This was a harsh punishment for one who was completely innocent. Verses 4 through 7 then speak of how Jesus was exonerated by Pilate, the man who had just had him punished. Then Pilate says, I'm going to bring him out to you, you Jews, because I don't find any guilt in him. And then he brings him out still with the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And he says, behold the man. Now, his judge declared several times no guilt was found in Jesus. He was Jesus Christ the righteous. He was a spotless lamb. Uh, he was, had no guilt of his own for him to suffer. And so he would suffer for our guilt, for our sin. Behold the man. We would do well to behold him too, as he is presented to us in the gospel. But the Jews were not satisfied with the suffering he had endured already. He would have looked bloodied and torn. He would not have looked like a threat. But the chief priests are the ones who said, crucify him. In fact, the Jews charged Jesus now with blasphemy. They said, we have a law and he must die. The one who blasphemes must be put to death. And the law did say that. But Jesus had not blasphemed. He said, well, he made himself the son of God. But he was the son of God. Uh, he was equal with the father. And uh, he, he had made those claims, but they were not blasphemy. He had shown them many miracles. He had made his case. He had made his arguments, but they would not hear it. But of course, that made Pilate kind of nervous. In verses 8 through 11, Pilate becomes even more afraid. Now, why do you think Jesus, uh, sorry, why do you think Pilate would have become afraid when he heard that this man claimed to be the son of God? Well, the Greeks and the Romans had stories in their mythologies of gods who would come in human form and test people, maybe come as a stranger and see if you would show them hospitality and, and maybe reward you if you did, but treat you, you know, judge you if you treated them unjustly. Perhaps Pilate was thinking of one of those stories. In any case, he realized, wait a minute, something else might be happening here. Where is this guy really from? And he goes back and he asks Jesus. But Pilate, even though he knows that this man had done no wrong, also gets easily frustrated, though, as Jesus refuses to talk. And then he starts treating him not like he's a god, but rather as some proud uh, person. He says, don't you know who I am? I have authority to release you. I have authority to, to crucify you. But Jesus make sure that Pilate knows that uh, 
He only has authority over Jesus because it's been given him from above. Jesus, by all rights, has authority over Pilate. Uh, That is why Jesus is so confident, why he is silent before his accusers, because he's there for a purpose. He's there to lay down his life. Uh, He is in control of the situation. As Isaiah 53 had said, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't open his mouth to defend himself, to try to get out of it. He makes it clear also that the one who handed him over had the greater sin. Pilate would sin by having Jesus executed, but the greater sin was, was the, the Jewish leaders who were pressing so hard for his execution, who should have known better. Well, then verses 12 through 16 describe the judgment scene. There is a judgment seat on the stone pavement. And there at the stone pavement, Gabbatha, uh, it's about the sixth hour of the day, probably between the third and the sixth hour, the day of preparation of Passover. That means the day before the Sabbath in Passover week. So on that Friday, he says to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. This encapsulates what John had said at the beginning of this gospel, that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He was their king, and yet they rejected him. These Jews were so hostile towards Christ that they sided with Caesar against Christ. In fact, they apparently disowned God himself. They should have said God is our king as well as Caesar, but they said we have no king but Caesar. Not this man, no one but Caesar. They renounce Christ for Caesar alone. It would have been appropriate for them to realize they were under the emperor's rule, but to to deny Christ, to deny a God even, in this type of uh, expression, um, in rejecting their Savior and their Messiah, was a statement of apostasy. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, saw a vision, and in his vision there was a prostitute, a a sexually immoral woman, who was riding on the back of a a beast. The beast portrayed... uh, Rome and especially its emperors and their demand for worship and and the prostitute uh, symbolized uh, God's unfaithful people, those who had rejected Christ. And they had aligned themselves with the beast, with Caesar, rather than Christ. And as John saw in his vision, Rome would in turn turn on Jerusalem. They had trusted in Caesar but Caesar, in turn, would destroy Jerusalem. Just as Israel of old had trusted in chariots, had trusted in nations like Egypt, only to be then destroyed by the nations that they had trusted in. They say, we have no king but Caesar. And so they lost their king, all those who did not repent. Jesus was accused of treason, just as he was accused of blasphemy. They were saying, well, if he says he's a king, then obviously... He's uh, a treasonous fellow who's in rebellion against Caesar, and you, if you uh, let him go, you're not going to be a friend of Caesar either. 
and they start to pressure Pilate to judge him. But Jesus was not guilty of this either. He did not oppose Caesar's authority to lead a rebellion against them with the power of the sword. The apostles would say, honor the emperor in their, in their capacity as a civil magistrate to judge the wicked and to praise those who do good. And, and Jesus was, in fact, their king. He wasn't making it up. He was the king of the Jews. His kingdom was of a different kind. In fact, he was from heaven, and he was over all. He wasn't there to dethrone Caesar. He was there to rule over Caesar uh, and to be the king of kings. So behold your king. But such a king, uh, he did not come on his war horse in glory, but first he came in humility to die for his people, to suffer for them, to, to receive this rejection. He was the shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Uh, the shepherd was often an analogy for the king. Just as a shepherd cares for his flock, the king would care for his people. Uh, but he was willing to sacrifice himself and even to die for his sheep. So he was condemned that you might be forgiven. Condemned by a human judge, but also to have our iniquities laid on him so that he might suffer and satisfy divine justice, suffering not for his own sins, but for ours. Then verses 16 through 18 describe how Jesus was brought to a hill outside the city called the place of a skull, or Golgotha. In Latin, that's called Calvary. And Jesus was brought to this place and crucified, that is, nailed to a cross between two others who were also crucified. He was taken out of the city, just like the sin offerings on the Day of Atonement were taken out of the city. So Jesus suffered outside the city as a sacrifice for sin. He was crucified by being nailed to a tree, to a wooden post, and he died therefore a cursed death. As the Old Testament had said, one who died on, is, is, is hung on a tree is, is cursed, and he took himself upon himself the curse of the law against us. So as Calvin says, in the death of Christ, we are to consider on the one hand the dreadful weight of God's wrath against sin, and on the, his, on the other hand, his infinite goodness toward us. Uh, God was, was uh, sending his son because he loved us and because we had sinned against him and required this judgment for our sins. But at this place of a skull, again, not intended by Pilate or the Jews, but it was fitting that it was the place called a skull that Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. Remember the promise that this woman's offspring would bruise or crush the head of the serpent? Well, now he is on the place of a skull with that cross in that hill with him dying on the cross. And even though it looked like he was losing, this was actually how he would take away power from Satan, how he would release us from the dominion of death, and how he would destroy the work of the devil by uh, redeeming us by his death. Here he dealt the death blow to Satan's power and redeemed us. He was there among other criminals. Not that he was a criminal, but he was being treated as one. Just as Isaiah 53 said, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered 
with the transgressors. And so as John the Baptist had said, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came as a sacrifice to bear sins and to annihilate them in his suffering. He is the Son of God who bears his cross to his sacrifice. He is the one who would die for the people, like Moses' serpent who would be lifted up, that those who believe in him may not perish but have everlasting life. Now finally, in the last verses of this passage, 19 through 22, we have the inscription above him on the cross because the Romans, when they crucified people, they wanted people to see and fear. This is what happens to rebels. This is what happens to lawbreakers. This is what this man did, which was wrong, right? So they would put an inscription of what the guy did wrong above him. So as people walked by, they'd see, oh, this slave tried to kill his master. I better not do that. This is what happens to those people. Or this person tried to kill the governor, and that's what happened to him. I better not kill the governor, right? So they put the inscription above the cross, but above Jesus, it said, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. That would probably get a lot of people to wonder. Of course, the Jewish leaders were saying, no, you should say, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. That's why we wanted him killed. But Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. And providentially so, because it was true. He didn't merely say it, he was it. He was the king of the Jews. And it even says many people saw this, because it was near the city, and people were coming in and out. And it was in three languages, so anyone would be able to read it whether they were Gentile or Jew. Remember what Jesus had said before he died? When I am lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. And as he died, first being lifted up on the cross, and then, of course, being risen, ascended to heaven, that he would have this message proclaimed and draw both Jew and Gentile to be saved in him. And we see that beginning to be proclaimed even as he was on there on the cross. The king who died, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the Savior who would save his people by laying down his life for them, satisfying divine justice that we might be justified. So in conclusion, the themes in this passage is that Jesus was righteous and blameless. His judge knew that as he was condemned to death. He was also the king of the Jews, and that is uh, found throughout this passage. Uh, that it was the king of the Jews who was being killed. We see that he suffered pain and mockery and condemnation, but not for his own sins, and not merely as a tragic injustice, but in accord with everything else that had been said in the gospel up to this point. He came to lay down his life for the sheep. He came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He came to die for a purpose, and not uh, merely to make a statement, but, but, to, but to do something for you, and me, for all who receive him, not those who reject him, but for those who receive him, who are thereby given a right to be called the children of God. And so he is presented to us as he was presented to those people. Behold your king. Behold the man. Let us not reject him, but rather let us receive him and receive him uh, as our king, as our savior, as my Lord my God. Behold your king. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for loving us, loving the world, 
so that you sent your only begotten Son, uh, that all who believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you for giving us knowledge of this gospel. We ask that you would give each one of us this faith and a growing faith, that we might hold fast to him as our Savior. We pray that you would display him, Christ crucified, before all the peoples, uh, that we might not reject him, but rather to receive him and to, to benefit from what he has done on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.